we can code now 10 times to 100 times faster leveraging this technology. So if I'm a betting person, no, I think all of these problems will be solved by the end of uh, next year. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please tell a friend, and we'll keep sharing great conversations like the one we have for today. I'm your host, Dan Turchin, CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. We learn from AI thought leaders weekly on this show, and the added bonus is you get one AI fun fact each week. Today's fun fact comes from Richard Van Norden, who writes in Nature Online. ChatGPT-like AIs are coming to major science search engines. Now, we've talked about this on previous episodes. LLMs dedicated to science search are proliferating. Richard summarizes a lot of the current state of options and activity in this space by saying AI-powered chatbots are increasingly being used in scientific research with just in the past couple of weeks, Elsevier, Digital Science, and Clarivate all announcing plans to launch chatbots just for their own content. In 2023, these chatbots use LLMs to answer natural language questions about research topics, providing summaries of research findings, relevant references, and further questions to explore more. LLMs can be used to identify and correct errors in the literature. They can also be used to identify emerging research trends and to generate even new hypotheses. As always, we will link to the full article in today's show notes. And that one's actually somewhat relevant to the great conversation we have scheduled for today. Shifting to this week's conversation, semantic search using natural language where results are returned using conversational replies versus links is quickly replacing the search paradigm that has been predominant mode of search since the earliest days of, let's say, Lycos and Excite, even before we had Yahoo and Google. We've discussed the future of knowledge retrieval with great recent guests like DDoS, CEO of Sorcero, and Eric Olson, CEO of Consensus. Today, uh, we get a real treat. Amr and I met on a Gen AI panel, and everything he said was both insightful and contrarian. Immediately, I knew I wanted to introduce him to you, our audience. Amr's a legend in the search space who, by the way, also founded Cloudera, which went public in 2017 at a valuation of over $5 billion. Dr. Awadala is a luminary in the world of information retrieval. He's not only the CEO and co-founder now of Victara, a company that's revolutionizing how we find meaning across all languages of the world using the latest advances in deep neural nets, large language models, and natural language processing. Amr previously served as VP of Developer Relations for Google Cloud. Prior to joining Google in 2019, he, as I mentioned, co-founded Cloudera. In 2008, he served as its global CTO. He also served as, as Vice President of Intelligence Engineering at Yahoo from amazing years, 2000 to 2008. Amr received his PhD in EE from Stanford and his bachelor and master's degrees from Cairo University. And gosh, without further ado, Amr. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Let's get started by having Hi. you share a bit more uh, about your background and how you got into this space. No, it's, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm not going to share more about my background. You already <laughs> did an excellent job there reciting my background. 
But uh, in terms of how I bumped into the space, like uh, the generative AI slash large language model space, uh, I was at uh, Google Clouds, uh, head of uh, developer relations, vice president of developer relations over there. And uh, Google Cloud has many, many products. And it's not just AI. There's many, many aspects of uh, the Google Cloud platform. But while there, I got to see the power of large language models uh, a couple of years, I, I would say, before other people would see it. And uh, it was truly uh, just like the reaction everybody else had when they started interacting with ChatGPT for the first time. It was, it was truly inspirational for me uh, to finally be at this point in our time as a human civilization where we are able to talk to our software and tell our software what we want. And it understands us in the same way that we talk to each other. So it was clearly an inflection point that for me was very similar to uh, Windows 95, if we go back to 1995, or the iPhone in 2007, which by that I mean a significant elevation in the way that humans are able to interact with software. So before Windows 95, the only way we could interact was via the command line. And we had to remember these commands. There's a bunch of a preset defined uh, list of commands that we had to remember and all the options they can take. So very few of us could use that, right? And then Windows introduced the notion of a menu and a mouse. And now you can you don't have to remember the commands. You can navigate the menus. And that opened up consumption to a large group of people. But we had to rewrite all of our apps to take care of that new modality. And then the same thing happened again with uh, the iPhone and the touch screens uh, around the, the mid-2000s. We could now use our fingers to swipe right, swipe left, pinch in, pinch out. Again, that was a lot more natural. We all have fingers. We all know how to use them. And that opened up consumption to a way bigger population of people. But again, we had to go and rewrite all of our software and apps uh, to take care of that new modality of interaction. And now we are at finally at the stage where we can just talk to our software, like talk to each other, uh, whether that be verbally uh, spoken or written. And uh, we're very close to getting to the point where we can get the software to do what we want based on what we're saying. So that's uh, that that kind of uh, realization uh, that I came across while at Google, coupled with the fact I met a, a couple of uh, very, very smart engineers that were working on this technology uh, were the genesis for Victara. And that's why Victara came to be. There's a very small community today of people who are on the bleeding edge of generative AI, and I'd count you in that inner circle. I feel like the closer you are to the technology, the more that you realize that it's pathetically immature in its current state. Without overly editorializing, I'd love to get your perspective um, as a technologist who works with this stuff every day. What is the current state of generative AI? Yes. Uh, for, for, first, uh, we have to put things in perspective. I mean, it is definitely a very impressive state compared to 10 years ago. If you compare it to 10 years ago, it's absolutely mind-boggling what we, we have been able to accomplish as uh, all of us collectively working on this stuff. Uh, but yes, there is lots of building blocks that we need to fall in place uh, and we need to gain confidence around before we can truly start putting this technology between us and between our applications. First and foremost, it's something we're all very familiar with and we experienced if we use ChatGPT is the hallucination issue, right? And that's where the large language model uh, can err on the side of making up or, sorry for the lack of a better word, bullshitting you <laughs> in terms of a response uh, based on the models and what is that have learned. And that's a very intrinsic problem, actually, to large language models. So the way that large language models are 
created, you can think of it as it's compressing down information. We're taking petabytes and petabytes and petabytes of information and compressing it down to a few hundred gigabytes. So you can imagine that as a byproduct of that, you're not gonna, it's gonna be lossy compression. You're not gonna have all of the original data stored in the model, right? So the model tries its best to come up with its recollection of what it learned, but by definition, it will patch in things every uh, now and then. And that's where this issue of hallucination creeps up uh, because it does not have a photographic memory of everything it has seen. It has a compressed version of everything it has seen. And by the way, that's very similar to how our brains work too. When we go to school and we spend five years uh, working on a uh, our bachelor's degree or PhD degree, we, we're not going to remember everything from it, right? We're going to remember the essence of it. And so by definition, when you only remember the essence, you will tend to uh, patch in the blanks. And patching in the blanks, that's where you can become too creative sometimes. So that problem is very fundamental to large language models. It's a very hard problem. Uh, many of us are working in earnest to solve it because we know that before we can deploy large language models and critical business applications like finance or health or manufacturing, we have to resolve these issues. We cannot have the large language model going in and every now and then, even if there's a 1% chance it will make that mistake, we can't afford that. So that's one of the very fundamental problems that we're all working on. Uh, we believe at Victara we have a good initial solution uh, for it. There are some other secondary problems which are also concerning. Uh, one of them is the issue of bias and that the large language model they learn from us. Uh, so by definition, if you're not careful with what you're feeding it, you can end up with a model that's very biased in some way or another um, along many, many dimensions. Uh, very hard problem to track down and, 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 and solve. And then last but not least, the issue of copyright infringement. And we're seeing a lot of uh, book publishers now uh, going after OpenAI and suing OpenAI. Oh, your your neural network learned from our chemistry book. Your your neural network learned from our biology book. Uh, we know we need to resolve these issues as well. And the resolutions for them are not just technology resolutions. I think we need some legislation and some um, governance around how that is done. And it's by the way, a topic of debate, like uh, you, Dan, you're allowed to read any chemistry book you would like and learn from it anything you would like. And that, that's that's the why the book is there is for you to learn. So why can't the large language model learn from a book? Uh, so, uh, as you know, it's a very contentious uh, topic. Uh, the, the U.S. doesn't have a clear, firm rule yet, but some country like Japan, Japan, for example, now just said, yes, if you're learning from it and you're just learning, you're not copying it verbatim, you can go ahead and do that with, with a large language model. Uh, we don't have a clear cut rule yet in the U.S., and we'll see how these things uh, materialize in the courts as we have all of these lawsuits going on right now against OpenAI and against uh, uh, Stability AI, the founders of uh, Stable Diffusion. So we'll see how these things will materialize themselves. You mentioned how much progress we've made in, oh, let's say, the last nine months versus, let's say, the previous 10 years. And one of the things I wonder is given that rapid pace of innovation, when we're back here in let's say 2028 in five years, which of those fundamental issues that you just described do you think we will have uh, resolved by then? Oh, that's an excellent question. Uh, 2028 is a very long time. <laughs> that's five years, which given the rate with which uh, this technology has been advancing, 
and by the way, has been helping us at Nest. Like we can code now 10 times to 100 times faster leveraging this technology. So if I'm a betting person, no, I think all of these problems will be solved by the end of uh, next year at the high end. So we're talking about a year and a half uh, before we find very, very good solutions for the hallucination problem, for the copyright problem. Maybe the copyright problem will take a bit longer because that involves people making decisions. <laughs> so that one, maybe I'll give it a couple of more years on top. Uh, but for hallucination, for bias, uh, I think we'll have very, very good solutions by the end of next year. I've asked that question many times and I've never heard anyone with such confidence state that within five years, all of those problems might be resolved. So look, uh, or sorry, you said within one year, you're on the record now. So yes. we're going to book we're going to book you for a year from now. We're going to come and have yes. another version of this discussion, all right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, please do. Please do. Uh, now, like you, I grew up in the search space a long time ago in the uh, in the internet search space. And looking at some of the amazing developments in search technology since the 90s, like you, I mean, I'm it just it boggles the mind. Analogous to the advances we've seen with generative AI through the transformer architecture. My question for you is, given that you continue to reinvent search, is it the business model of search that's the problem? Is it the underlying retrieval mechanisms? What fuels your passion to believe that you know, there's always something that can be approved, improved upon in the, in the realm of information retrieval? Uh, I, I think it's the underlying product itself. So, so the product is changing now. Uh, in a significant way. So again, over the last 10 years, definitely large language models was a, a major, major innovation, but also uh, information retrieval and how we can find information based on its meaning and based on uh, co comprehending and understanding it versus simply matching patterns, meaning uh, the keyword then appeared over here, the keyword then appeared over there, then this is a good result. No, now we know who Dan is, what they're doing, what the context is, and these models are able to properly uh, classify, categorize, and find based on that. And that's what we call the embedding space or the vector space, uh, which is another reason why our name is actually Vectara as a company. It's going after that notion of a vector. And the vectors, they are the meanings, right? So these neural networks learned how to go from our language space, meaning English, Japanese, Chinese, German, French, into a universal embedding space or a universal meaning space. It's almost like they came up with their lingua franca that can encode all of our meanings and understand them at depth. And that's significant innovation. It's, 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 it's just as fundamental, if not more fundamental in, in my opinion, than the large language models themselves. In fact, they underlie how the large language models work. If we have not figured that, that out, we wouldn't have figured out large language models. So now for the first time in history, we are able to go after the meaning and get you an answer for your question, right? So we're moving away from the old way of doing things, which was search engines. And then the search engine gives you back a list of results that you have to read to verify whether one of these results has the answer that you're after to now you can not search, you can ask. So I like to say we are in the era of the answer engine and the answer engine, you ask the question, and instead of a list of results, you get back the answer. It reads all of the results for you. It sees all the different points of view that, that might agree with, you, with, with the result or disagree with it and present all of that for you in a very unbiased, uh, concrete answer to the question and the idea and the thought you're after. And I believe that was the underlying 
thing that made ChatGPT, for example, with consumers just explode. Uh, ChatGPT, as many of us know, it's uh, the only uh, the only organic growth service that was able to grow from zero to 100 million users in a few weeks. That has never happened in history before. And I think it's the first impression that most people, when you ask them, was what what made you excited about it? And it's like, because I could just answer my ask my question and I get back a cohesive answer that truly is answering this question. That was number one. Number two was, of course, how good it was at manipulating language. Like, please give me that answer now as a poem, or please give me that answer now in the style of Feynman and how Feynman explains uh, concepts. That was also impressive. But the first thing that really got people was, wow, I can now get answers. Uh, so I think that's the fundamental shift. Now, business model, you, you, you touched uh, on, uh, that, that applies more to consumer search engines like Google and others. And yes, there is a, a business model tension there where we do have these ads that show up on top of our uh, answers. And uh, these ads are how Google and others make money. And you can see how the ads can get in the way now. If, you, if you're getting an answer to your question, where are you going to put the ad? So that's a very big uh, topic of debate, and we'll see how that evolves over the next few years. As a consumer, prior to the GPT family of models, I thought that Google owned semantic search. I mean, when I ask about the Warriors being in the Bay Area, it's reliably going to tell me about the Golden State Warriors and not about the Terracotta Warriors in China. So to me, you know, it seems like a business model impediment that has stood in the way of this innovation coming out of Google. So as your former employer, do you feel like it poses an existential threat because search as a function is being reinvented? Um, yes, it does. But I mean, first I will note that they absolutely have the technology internally to do this well. Like, so in terms of can they do it? Absolutely, they can do it. They and in fact, right now I already signed, opted in to the feature in Google search where they will give you the generative response, right, as a, by default. So you can opt into that right now and it gives you the answer. It gives you a generated answer to your question right away. Now, as more and more people adopt that, will that now start to detract from the revenue that they make from advertising? I think the answer is yes, because if you have the answer right there, why would you look at the ad? But then, can they embed the ad in a very natural, homogeneous way and constructive way where there's value back to me? Because for some questions, actually, the ads are the right answer. Like if you're looking to for a solution, for the service, for something to buy, the ad might be the, the answer you're looking for. So will they figure that out, how to weave that in organically within that experience without destroying the experience? Then that would be their salvation. And I think they're working on that. But if they can't figure that out, yes, that, that will be an existential threat because now the answer is what the people want and they will start ignoring the ads completely. You talked a little bit about the problem of hallucination and what could be up ahead. I know a big concept at Victara is grounded generation. Yes. And I, I would love for you to introduce us to the concept and why it might solve the problems that are really constraining adoption of LLMs today. Yes. So as we highlighted at the beginning uh, of conversation, uh, the, the reason, one of the key reasons, it's not the only reason, but one of the key reasons that the large language models can make up stuff uh, or do make up stuff or need to make up stuff is because they are a compressed down representation of knowledge, right? So they're taking all of the, and, and truly it's mind boggling to see how much we're able to compress the entire knowledge of the world 
in a few hundreds of gigabytes of, uh, of weights in a neural network. It's truly impressive. And it's one of the things that's mind-boggling for all of us researchers and everybody being exposed to this, is how effective that method is at compressing down information. So uh, how do you solve the hallucination issue? It's very simple. How would you solve it if you were a human? You would solve it by having photographic memory. If you have a photographic memory around the concepts that you are providing opinions about or providing answers around, then the probability of you making a mistake will be much lower because now you're grounding your conclusions, you're grounding your summaries, you're grounding your answers in these underlying facts that are coming from that photographic memory. So that's, that's what grounded generation is about. So grounded generation is we're going to have three neural networks working hand in hand, actually. It's not one neural network. There is one neural network that is focused on providing the summary, the, the generative output, the response. But there is also a neural network that runs at the beginning that is focusing, focusing on given all the documents that you have as a company, given all the documents that you have as an organization, what are the most relevant facts in these documents that have to do with the question you're asking right now or with the prompt that you're issuing right now? And that requires very deep semantic understanding. So I need to semantically understand your prompt or question. And then based on my semantic understanding of your prompt of question, I now need to match that to my semantic understanding of all of the underlying documents to find the 10 key facts or maybe 20 key facts that are most relevant to that question and pre present the different view viewpoints around that question, right? So that's number one step. We find these facts. And then there's another neural network that comes in now and says, okay, now I'm gonna apply even deeper understanding, which is which is, takes more computational power. So you don't want to do it on the full data set. You wanna do it only on a subset of the data set. Of these 100 facts I just found, I wanna reorder them so that the number one fact is the most relevant fact, the second fact is the second most relevant fact, et cetera, et cetera, right? And, and introduce this variety uh, in, in viewpoints in, in that sorting order. So how can I sort the facts as a function of the question you asked so that the facts are uh, maximizing the information content relevant to what you're after, okay? And then once I have that sorted list of facts, that's it, your job now is done. You give these facts to the large language model at the end, and you, tell the, you explicitly tell the large language model, you are sandboxed into only providing an answer to this question or this prompt. And the only knowledge, you can use your understanding of English language, you can use your understanding of the domain, meaning law versus manufacturing versus engineering versus medical, but don't uh, introduce knowledge outside of these facts we're giving to you, right? So read these facts and then answer that question, leveraging your knowledge, but stay within these facts. So by constraining the model this way, we now significantly reduce the probability that it will hallucinate. And by the way, it does still hallucinate every now and then, but it's a much more lower probability. And we are publishing soon an open source framework that people can use to measure the hallucination probability in cases like this. Second, by constraining it also to these facts, you're significantly reducing the probability of copyright infringement or intellectual property infringement, because now it's not gonna, the large language model is not gonna be relying on what it learned about the world, which might 
include some of that. It's only responding back based on what you have in your data. Of course, if your data and facts have copyright issues, then we're still going to have the copyright issues. But that's your mistake now that you fed that in. Uh, and then last but not least, it significantly reduces the bias as well. The large language model might have learned bias, but it's interpreting these existing facts as that's the truth right now. So again, the bias will be a function of the input facts not what the model was trained on. So we end up hit, uh, solving three problems right away by doing grounded generation. Less hallucinations, less bias, and less probability of intellectual property or copyright infringement. So that's an excellent answer and it's mostly satisfying, but a little bit of it is, is dissatisfying or, or yes. you know, leaves me to ask more questions. So as you said, uh, if it's fed misinformation, then even the best GAN or you know, generative adversarial network approach is still going to yield, you know, maybe it'll, it'll filter out some of the most egregious misinformation, but it's still vulnerable to the integrity of what it was fed, which leads yes. me to another question that I know you're a bit of a philosopher at heart. So I got to ask, I mean, in this new world of generative AI, what is a fact? And what, what is truth anymore? If, <laughs> if machines are generating all of this new content, whether or not we believe what the machine generates, at what point does what comes out of Gen AI introduce a new reality? And might our definition of a fact change as more of this infiltrates our daily lives? As you correctly highlighted, that's a very hard question to answer, even without Gen AI. Even without Gen AI, like what's a, what's a fact? How, how, like, as we say, History is written by the victor, right? So in many times, the facts we are seeing are not the true facts. It's the facts that the, the victor decided will be the facts we all need to align on. And there's few exceptions to that. I mean, science obviously can be a lot more rooted in proofs. And uh, these proofs can help us establish that one plus one equals two. But even that, like uh, new, some new learnings you might have around the quantum mechanics will make us question that one plus one equals two in this condition, but under that condition, it actually might not, <laughs> right? So, so, so in other words, establishing what is a fact and what is not, uh, even before Gen AI was a very, very hard problem that we all are worried about. Uh, we also, uh, what can happen with propaganda? We all know what can happen with propaganda when it's used in the right way or used in the wrong way. Uh, propaganda does not come from uh, Gen AI. Propaganda comes from humans. We make up these things. Now, the unfortunate reality is Gen AI will help us make it much quicker, will help us make it uh, in a lot more personalized way. I can now create propaganda for Dan specifically that will trick Dan. So imagine now Cambridge Analytica, uh, which was definitely a, a propaganda machine that was used in uh, the Trump elections. Imagine that now with the ability to customize that message for every single person to lean in to what they believe is facts, which might not be true facts, but that lean into that, lean into what they are afraid of and their fears and, and get them to say yes to a certain resolution or vote that you want to pass. I'm actually very worried about that problem. Uh, I don't have an answer for what it's the proper way for handling would be. One uh, idea I have, which can be true, but might not, it requires research to prove out that it can work out, is we are going to need the antivirus of facts. Like, 
We have viruses for software. Viruses for software happens all the time, even though it's illegal, by the way. If you create a virus for software and the federal government catches you, you are going to prison, but we still have viruses happening left and right because we live in a global world and we live in a world where not everybody is, uh, is a nice person. But the solution was we're going to have regulations that prevent these things. That's step number one, which is great. But two, we're going to have technology that catches these things, right? So I think we need uh, 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 the technology that is an anti-propaganda technology, where if I'm hearing a message, Amr is talking to me right now, trying to convince me with something, a, a number will show up in the upper right corner. Uh, this, these statements coming out of his mouth right now, with a 70% probability, they're being said to manipulate you. They're not being said to, to truly educate you, <laughs> right? Can we have something like that? We, we, I think we need that. Like the future will need that, will require that. So maybe that's a startup idea for somebody to go work, uh, go work on. <laughs> I've often talked about the need for a hygiene score for models, kind of like a restaurant gets graded on its hygiene. So should an AI model. And I like that idea of, uh, you know, some kind of an, of an, of an integer that assigns the likelihood that this is manipulative. Yeah, um, like a bullshit meter. Absolutely, and that's a good <laughs> word You're being it. bullshitted right now. Like, no, yes. you are being bullshitted right now. <laughs> and and as soon as we finish recording, please copyright that. All right? <laughs> I, I love it, I love it. <laughs> yeah, the bullshit meter, yes. Yeah, absolutely, it'll go yeah. viral. <laughs> uh, so along those lines, another tough question for you. Um, as a vendor who's disseminating these technologies, what is your responsibility? And whether it's the federal government, the EU, you mentioned regula regulation in Japan, who should be regulating this? And how as a vendor do you think the output of your models should be regulated? That's an excellent uh, question. So our model is being used uh, for Victara specifically first. We are being used internally within organizations. So we are not being built for the for the public population at large. We're being built for companies to leverage this within their companies. And we expect that with collaborating with their board of directors, with their uh, chief information office, with their chief security office, that we can properly re reach these balances for balancing uh, truthfulness, meaning hallucination, for balancing bias, for balancing copyright infringement and such. That said, uh, I wish and I hope our government moves faster. It's slow right now. Uh, Japan has moved really fast, which I was impressed by. Uh, the, the Europe is about to issue a very, very comprehensive, I don't agree with everything in it, but a very comprehensive uh, framework around uh, generative AI technologies. We need to do that as well. And I, 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 it's a qualm I have uh, a little bit where our government seems to be listening more to the top tier, top brass companies in the space. And frankly, they have their own selfish needs that they're going after. And I think that influencing our government in probably not the best ways. Uh, when you listen to, um, I don't want to pick a certain company, but one of the big companies uh, speaking to the government, they try to scare them and tell them, oh, the regulation should be only a few companies should do this. And we only trust them to do it. And we only monitor them. It's like, no, obviously that, that will need down the wrong rabbit hole. We, like anybody with half a brain would see that. That will give that a company too much control. Roll that forward 10 years from now, we are going to have Skynet. <laughs> right, you need to have multiple peoples working on these antiviruses, working on these techniques to make the models better. That's the only way we're going to keep this democratic, true, honest, and a reflection of all of us. So that's kind of my feedback to the government: is you need to include more of us in the decision-making process. Yeah, this is and not a minute conversation. I I agree with yeah. your perspective. I feel like 
we are inviting big tech to grade its own homework. And yes. I, you know, yes, like yes. Like if you look at the like the drug industry, you don't ask the the head of a drug company, please come and run the FDA. <laughs> like, like, duh, like that's gonna be a big. There's a reason there's an independent like FDA. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, to my opening comments, I mean, I I just I I constantly marvel at the comical immaturity of not just the technology, but all the infrastructure and the regulation and just how we introduce a disruptive technology like this into society, I'm not sure we're ready for it. And that's okay, but we're definitely not ready for it. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I'm not ready for it, but we need to be. It's moving very fast. And if we don't get ahead of it, it can be dangerous. It can backfire. So I I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. And it's how innovation happens. And it's okay. Mm -hmm. It's a little messy. I got to get you off the hot seat. I I feel like we're just getting started, but... uh, (laughs) But not, not, not before answering one last question for me. Uh, speaking of uh, kind of the messiness of innovation, mm-hmm. uh, you're an amazing serial entrepreneur. And uh, I would love to get your perspective. What's the hardest thing about high-tech entrepreneurship that nobody talks about? Oh, wow. That's a very tough question. I wouldn't say high-tech only, but I would say entrepreneurship in general. The, the two hardest things I always encounter over and over again at the beginning of your journey it's product market fit, right? It's like making sure, wow, this technology is great. It's awesome. Large language models can do these amazing things. Embedding and information retrieval models can do these amazing things. Excellent. How can that solve a real problem in the real world that truly helps people? So finding product market fit, a lot of times us coming from engineering centric companies, we, we lose that importance of tying it back to the customer and to the problem they're trying to solve. And that's the number one advice I always give is like, Always remind yourself of that. Get your first product out, even if it's not 100%. Get the 80% out because you want to get that feedback from your customer. Like, this this is meeting me where I need to be versus no, what, what the heck are you talking about? This is a useless product, <laughs> right? So that's that's the number one challenge, bar none, at the beginning years, right? And then later on, at the later years, which you're in the middle of that uh, tornado right now yourself, is execution. Like building a team that is executing like a symphony. Like everybody just singing the same tone, moving in the same direction, helping each other. Oh my God, that's such a hard problem to get done as a company is drawing fast at the same time. It's, 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 uh, it's uh, stressful. It's nerve wracking. It's an essential component of success. And if you don't get good at doing it, you will not succeed. So that, that would be the, the two key problems I will highlight. As you've pushed yourself to the limits over the years, building teams, building companies, building technology, what have you learned about yourself? That's about also an excellent question. I love that question. I think during my, uh, not just building companies, like just maturing from, I'm, I'm 52 years old right now. So uh, during these decades, I would say one of, the, one of the key lessons I've been learning over and over again is uh, be authentic to yourself. Be authentic to yourself. Like listen to other people, listen to their propaganda, like we said earlier, but leverage your authenticity and your understanding. Uh, don't let that propaganda override your views. Come up with your own views. So that's that's my key message that I would like to give to anybody listening to me right now. Like, don't fall into the dogma of other people. You need to establish your own dogma. Brilliant. Hey, we're out of time, but gosh, we're all rooting for you and for the team to succeed. If the audience wants to learn about your work and the work of Victoria, where should they go? 
they should go to Victara.com. That's the best place to learn more about Victara. And I will highlight a very key uh, benefit of our platform that I want to conclude with is one, there is so many people doing Gen AI, Gen AI platforms, this or that. Or, and one of the key areas that we're choosing to differentiate on is ease of use, ease of use. We have a very simple platform. You upload your data with one API call and you get amazing responses to questions with another API call. You don't have to worry which large language model I'm going to use, how I'm going to fine tune it to minimize hallucination, how I'm going to uh, configure it to make it scalable, to make it secure. We take care of all of that for you so you can get your job done. So I just want to conclude by highlighting that. We'll link to all that in the show notes as well. Well, Amr, this has been uh, this has been a lot of fun. I look forward to our follow up a year from now. Yes, we're gonna yes. Those, uh, prognostications. Where all these problems have been solved. Yes, <laughs> you bet. <laughs> all right, well, that's uh, that's all the time we have for this week on AI and the future of work. As always, I'm your host Dan Turchin from People Rain, and of course, we're back next week with another fascinating guest. Thank you.